Stand with me now for the reading of our scripture, which is our same text from last week, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come again as your children. And we ask you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom you have caused to live within us and to dwell among us, that you would help us to understand and implement the truth of these words today. Father, we put our faith, our hope, our trust in your word and in your ability to apply it to our lives. We come as crouching beggars with nothing in our hands. And unless you give it to us, we will have nothing in our hands. But you love to fill us up. You love to fill our cups. And we ask that you would do that here in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we covered uh, verses 3 to 5. This week we're going to focus on 6 to 9. And I do love the epistolatory pace of just slowing down. And, um, and again, there is, a, there is a call for the chapter at a time, the big story at a time. That's, the Bible's made up of a lot of different types of literature. Um, and ultimately, this would have been a letter that people read in one sitting, and they would have heard it from Peter, and they would have seen the the beauty of it and the the power of it, and they would have thanked God for it. And today, two thousand years later, almost, we get to say every one of these words was breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God, and we want to just baptize, which means immerse ourselves in these words. And um, it's just, it's so refreshing to slow down and to just uh, dig in here. So first we're going to go with uh, verse 6. In this you rejoice, Peter says, though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials. So with this verse, we're really getting into the point of the letter. 
picking up a theme that's going to be woven throughout the rest of the letter. We've seen from our first two messages, which was, uh, first one was Peter's opening greeting, and that was glorious. And then last week we saw him start up the body of the letter with a call to, um, let's, let's just read what he said last week, which we'll just read as well, but we need to read this to lead into verse 6. So, <clears throat> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we saw the call of Peter to bless God the Father, for giving us new life, the very resurrection life of Jesus, and to bless him for keeping an inheritance for us in heaven and for keeping us in the salvation that he has called us to that will carry us to that inheritance that's being kept for us. So it's an amazingly wonderful thing to know that God started this whole process of salvation and that he's going to guard us the whole way through until we reach that far shore and receive the inheritance that he has promised once we get there. He did it, he is doing it, and he will do it. And it is glorious in our eyes, is it not? This is the Lord's doing, and it is glorious in our eyes. So now here, back in verse 6, where we started today, um, Peter says that knowing what we know from verses 3 to 5, then what? In this you rejoice. Yeah, I'd say so, right? In the knowledge of our salvation and the God of that salvation, you, Peter says, and that means us, though he didn't know that at the time, you, we, rejoice in the knowledge of our salvation and the God of that salvation. And if you don't rejoice in that salvation and the God of that salvation, you should if you're born again. What does it mean to rejoice in something? So let's say you receive some good news. Um, whether you have tangible proof of it or not, it makes you happy, right? The, uh, the children's had their babies, and we saw a picture of them. We haven't seen the babies, but we're... Happy about it, right? We rejoiced in it. So uh, let, let's, let's paint a different picture. Say that some kind benefactor came and said, I want to bless you and I want to pay off your mortgage. And that you will be getting the deed to your house in the mail in the next 10 to 14 business days. Would you be happy? You, you might be a little bit skeptical at first with a furrowed brow wondering what in the world this crazy person was talking about. But as they reassure you and communicate the surety of what they are saying, you would feel happy, right? You'd feel something. You would likely feel a burden lift. You might even cry tears of joy. I don't know. But you'd definitely be affected. And that affecting would probably result in joy. And you would spend the next however long 
taking in the greatness of what had happened. You'd feel joy. And your reaction to that joy, your response to the feeling, would be as real and as tangible as the deed itself, even though you don't necessarily have it in your hand. And you would probably think about it over and over, rehashing, rehearsing, reliving the truth of that news time and time again. Well, that is rejoicing. The word means to be exceeding glad, to exult. And it's a present tense verb. You are rejoicing. You are experiencing the effects of what is making you joyful. And what was that that was making these readers joyful? Thomas Schreiner says this, The phrase reaches back to the entire content of verses 3 to 5, focusing on the eschatological hope of believers. They rejoice now because of the inheritance that most certainly awaits them. So they rejoice in what has been done, and they rejoice in what will come. In this you rejoice. In the wonderful news of verses 3 to 5. You rejoice now, and it's always now, right? You rejoice now that God the Father gave you the resurrection life of God the Son, and God the Spirit is keeping and empowering you until you receive your final inheritance in heaven. So yeah, in this you rejoice. Now, and now, and now, and now, and now. That's pretty easy, pretty simple, right? Well, it is. But look at the next part of the verse. Though, that's kind of like a dun-dun-dun kind of, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Oh, now wait a second. Let's get back to the rejoicing thing for a second. Because that feels better than this, right? Grieved by various trials? Why'd you have to go there, Peter? We were rejoicing. We were talking about good things. But that's exactly the point. You rejoice now for what God has done from eternity past and will do into eternity future to save you. You rejoice, yes, hallelujah. You never let go. But there is calm and there are storms. There are highs and there are lows. And Peter is saying here that our rejoicing now is not in spite of the storms and the lows, but in the midst of them. In this great salvation, you now rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And this is going to be a dominant theme throughout both of these letters of Peter's. Trials, grieved by various trials, suffering, persecution, hardships, turmoil, uncertainty... And we could go on and on and on with more and more synonyms, but I think you get the point. Hard, bad, trying things happen. And listen to me. Please, the youngest of you to the oldest of you, please listen to me. Nobody told me this growing up. Everybody is going to go through trials. Trials happen to saved people. Trials happen to unsaved people. They happen in every life. 
And what do they cause? Peter says here they cause grief. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And you maybe you, your eyes or your heart jump to that phrase, if necessary, and hope to exclude yourself or your loved ones from these trials. Maybe it won't be necessary that these trials come upon us. Maybe God will spare us from them. But, but don't miss the thought pattern here. Don't miss what's really going on. What are these trials exactly? Well, that's a little bit tricky. Because if you look at this word, trials, you see a lot. I don't think I put this in there. I don't think, I don't think. No, I didn't. So the word for trials uh, is used uh, 21 times in the New Testament. It's translated as temptation 19 times. It's temptations once and try once. So 19 times, what's the main thought here? It's temptations. An experiment, an attempt, a trial, a proving. The trial made of you by my bodily condition, Paul said to the Galatians. The trial of man's fidelity, integrity, virtue, and constancy. So when we that's that's a trial. Now think about temptation. Same word, an enticement to sin, whether arising from the desires or from the outward circumstances. It's also an internal temptation to sin. It's used of the condition of things or a mental state by which we are enticed to sin or to lapse from the faith and holiness. It's also translated as adversity, affliction, trouble. Now watch this, sent by God and serving to test or prove one's character, to prove one's faith or to prove one's holiness. Hence the word temptation. The temptation of God by men. We can try God as well. So there's a lot there. The word for trials is mostly translated as temptations. And it is a temptation that can come from inside or outside. It can be from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Or it can be from God. Let no one say though, when you're tempted that God is tempting you with evil because God is neither affected by evil nor can use evil to affect you. It's not how he works. But the purpose of the temptation is to try or test the character, to try or test the faith and or holiness of the person experiencing it. Now let me ask you, is it necessary that these trials come on some people or all people? Well, Matthew 18 and in Luke 17, Jesus says that temptations to sin are sure to come. There's no escaping. And those temptations, or back to Peter's word, those trials, which necessarily will come as they cause us grief, Peter says they are to be rejoiced in. As they cause us grief, they are to be rejoiced in. Why? How? Because our rejoicing is based in our eternal God-wrought salvation while our necessary trials, which come from ourselves, the devil, the world, God, or wherever, 
What are they? They're for a little while. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You rejoice in the eternal while here for a little while, you're grieved by various trials. So, though now for a little while, the grieving caused by these various trials is now as well, but it's only for a little while. Don't miss that. Peter does not deny that things are hard and that they're hard now. But didn't he say that we're to bless God for the salvation that he has given us now? Rejoice now? And that salvation is also now, right? And it's also eternal. So again, guess what's not eternal? What's not eternal is the grief caused by these various trials. That grief is experienced now, but this finite temporal state in which we encounter these various trials and the resulting grief will one day be swallowed up into eternity. Every tear will be wiped away. Everything sad will be made untrue. Rejoice in God's eternal salvation, though now for a little while you're grieved by various trials. You see, I can rejoice now, whatever now entails. Happiness, sadness, hard, easy, rest, trial, whatever, because my eternity is settled. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Temporary grief is seen through the lens of eternal joy. And that eternal perspective helps propel us into the next verse, which helps explain the purpose of the trials and the good that comes from them. Verse 7. Oh, that is not verse 7. There we go. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise... I lost my slide. And glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Aha! These trials are not random. And they are not pointless. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that, connective clause, connective clause, there should be lights going off. Woo, woo, woo. Maybe you don't all get as excited as me over connective clauses. But they're so important in studying the Bible. This happens so that something else might happen. And here, being grieved by various trials happens so that what? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll get back to that middle statement about gold in a bit. It's a pretty big deal here. Why are we tempted? Why are we tried? Well, first Peter says, so that our faith may be tested and found to be genuine. These trials are tests to show if our faith is the real deal. If our faith persists through hard times and continues through struggles, then it shows that our faith is not just out of convenience or only self-interested. Think of a diet. You're like, oh, don't say the D word. We get ourselves all geared up and say, we're not going to eat anything but bean sprouts and drink water and lose 50 pounds in six weeks or something stupid like that. 
But then we're tempted by some good food, right? Not peas. I'm going to throw a rock again. That temptation, that that rich, fine, sugary, carb-loaded, yummy food comes and it diverts our good intentions and our pure motives and we give in and we say, I just can't do it. Well, hard times, trials, temptations serve to see if we really believe what we say we believe. Jesus talks about this in, in the parable of the soils. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And I am lost my control up here if y'all can scroll forward there. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So there is an apparent faith in some that's not genuine faith. Hardships, trials, tribulations, persecutions, distractions, ease, comfort, and a host of other factors show that that faith wasn't the real deal. It was a preference for a while. A mental decision that had no life to it. But there is a faith that is real and trials show that faith to be real. And that kind of faith, getting back to that middle clause about gold, that kind of faith is precious. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Genuine trial-tested faith is worth more than we can imagine or calculate. Peter compares it to gold. He says that genuine proven faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Now I think that's a weird phrase. Not just gold, but gold that perishes though it's tested by fire. Well, how do you purify gold? You put it in the fire. And what happens is it melts down to its base and if there are any impurities in it, any alloys other metals besides just the pure gold, they melt away and they separate. That's how they purify gold. In the same way, trials purify us, showing what's real and what's not, showing our preferences, showing our sins, showing the things that distract us. And in the fire of the trial, those things melt away. But Peter says our faith is more precious than gold which we call a precious metal for a reason. There were gold rushes and people flocking out west to try to get gold because gold is worth a lot of money, especially pure gold. Peter also says that that gold perishes, though it's tested by fire. What's up with this perishing part? Well, it speaks to the temporal nature of all things, even gold, the most precious things. Listen, one day... Every ounce of gold in the world will pass away. When the heavens and the earth are consumed, decimated, and done away with, after which God will recreate those heavens and this earth in a totally new creation. So all of this precious gold that's in our world now will perish. 
And then Peter draws the contrast to that, as precious as it is, it's going to go away. But our faith, our genuine tested faith, will not. Ever. That genuine faith will carry us into this new kingdom. And that genuine faith will produce fruit for eternity. For eternity. Again, we can't grasp eternity. So that's more precious than the most precious thing we've got. That precious metal that's going to burn up one day. And what is the fruit that this genuine faith produces? Peter says that our faith is tested so that it may be found to result in... Again, I'm not controlling this. One seven. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, again, don't miss this. Listen. Your trials that prove the genuineness of your faith result in what? Praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, let me ask you a question. Who's that praise and glory and honor for? Is it for you? No. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see multiple times throughout the scriptures that to God alone belongs praise and glory and honor. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.11-13 gives us a preview of this fruit of the praise of God that results from our trials when it says this, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that's in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. So get this straight in your head, in your heart, in your hands. No, your genuine faith doesn't lead to your praise, honor, and glory. But your genuine faith leads to praise, honor, and glory for King Jesus when He is revealed in His final kingdom, reigning from above, coming down to be with us, reigning and ruling forever with us, that we might serve Him, glorify, honor Him, give Him worship for eternity. That's the fruit that your trials produce. Your your trials produce the genuineness of your faith, and the genuineness of your faith leads to praise, honor, and glory for Jesus. When Jesus is finally and fully revealed as King of kings and Lord of lords, and all the universe bows the knee before Him, and they will... Those who put their faith in Him for salvation, those who lived by that faith, those who had their faith tried and shown true, will be part of the reason that Jesus is praised. Ephesians 3, 7-13. We've talked about this many times, but it's a perfect picture of this. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that... Connective clause. 
so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Here, at the end of all things, God holds up the church. Those whose faith is true and tested and pure, and the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places see us, see this church, and are thus shown the manifold wisdom of God. And that is His eternal purpose. Listen, our faith and its genuineness results in praise for God. And that is more precious than temporal gold. It's eternally invaluable. You can't place a value on it. And that is why we are grieved for a little while by various trials. And listen, it is worth it. And I think our minds automatically jump to, but is it worth it for me? Yes. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The very reason you were created was to give glory to God. So if my trials produce glory for God that is visible and appreciated by others, then yes, it's worth it because I'm fulfilling the very thing I was created for. And He gets glory for it. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's what I want more than anything else. Not comfort, not ease, not spared from trials. I want God's glory more than I want anything else. And we struggle with that. But it is worth it. It's worth it for us. It's worth it for the Savior who gave us this genuine faith. And speaking of Him, verse 8 draws our attention to Him. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So the previous verse finished by speaking of the coming revelation of Jesus Christ. So here, Peter continues to speak of Jesus. The Him, H-I-M, is Jesus. And in moving toward... Toward in this thought, and moving forward in this thought on faith in Jesus, Peter points out that his readers have not seen Jesus, though you have not seen him. And we dated the writing of this letter to be in 64 AD, which would have been 30 ish years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. All historical facts, by the way. And remember, the scattered exiles that Peter is writing to that are in the area we call Turkey today, which is a far piece, which is a very Appalachian phrase, a far piece from the Israel-Palestine land area where Jesus spent his earthly life. Jesus never went to Turkey in his earthly life. So time and distance-wise, 30-plus years later, many miles away, these people, it makes sense that those reading, people, reading Peter's letter would not have seen Jesus. But, Peter says, though you've not seen him, you love him. These readers of Peter's letter love a Jesus 
they have never seen. Let me tell you what, that's not a good way to start a relationship, young folks. Man, I've never seen this guy, but I love him. No, don't do that. It's a terrible romantic idea. It's a fantastic spiritual idea. The word love here is agapao, and it translated as loved or be loved. And it means to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, or to love dearly. It also means to be well-pleased or, or to be contented at or with a thing or a person. So Peter says these readers of his that have not seen Jesus are well-pleased. They love dearly this man, Jesus, whom they have been told was and is God in the flesh, God the Son. They've been told that this man, Jesus, died a death on a cross to pay the penalty for their sins, to purchase their eternal salvation. They've been told that He came back from the grave, He came back to life, and that very resurrection life was given to them as a gift of God through their faith. They've been told that over 500 people saw Him alive after He was resurrected. They've been told by Peter himself, I saw Him ascend into heaven. And they love Jesus as a result. They've not seen Him. And Peter says they do not now see Him. There's no promise that in the physical, earthly time that these readers are alive, that they're going to see Jesus. If He comes back, they'll see Him. But if He doesn't, they're not going to see Him. They don't see Him now. Do you see Jesus now? No, you don't. Because... Jesus, the physical man in a physical body, is seated in heaven, awaiting the day when he comes back to rule and reign forever. Jesus ascended into heaven, is seated there, and so Peter's readers, <laughs> Peter's readers, they still don't see him. And they won't till either they go to heaven or he comes and makes heaven here on earth. And although they still don't see him now, they believe in him. They haven't seen Him and they love Him. They don't see Him now and they believe in Him. They've put their trust in Him for their salvation. Now that word believe doesn't just mean they're sure about it. Yeah, He exists. Sam Storms says it this way. Believe in verse 8 means much more than giving mental assent to doctrinal truths about Jesus. It certainly includes such assent. But it also requires yielding to Him, relying on Him moment by moment, entrusting one's soul to Him, and turning to Him at all times for strength and encouragement and hope. End of quote. Herb Hodges simplifies it when he says that to believe literally means to live by. When you believe something or believe in someone, you live by that belief. And that's what them believing in Jesus means. And, Peter says, they don't just believe in Jesus, they rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, that's a mouthful. They love Jesus, they believe in Him, and as a result, they rejoice. Now, that's the second time we've seen that word in these few verses. It's probably a theme, don't you think? In verse 6, Peter said that his readers rejoiced in their salvation, though they're grieved by various trials for a little while. Here, in light of loving and believing in Jesus, they rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
When you love Jesus and believe in Jesus, you can't help but rejoice. And not just rejoice, but this rejoicing is expanded on by saying it is a rejoicing that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's a lot. Peter says that their rejoicing is inexpressible. It just can't be properly voiced or explained. It's there. You just can't fully vent it or get it out. And Peter doesn't have words to describe it either. He's like, you rejoice, and you know what I mean, right? But he does try to give a little bit more detail about it, saying that that rejoicing is full of glory. That glory, it's the second time we've seen that word too, by the way. The fact that Peter says it's full of glory is Peter's way of saying that this rejoicing is not just wishful thinking, but it has an object. This rejoicing is rejoicing in something that's real. And with Jesus not being visible, the object that this rejoicing is rejoicing in is glory. And glory is a little bit of a tricky concept. But simply put, it is a right apprehension of something. The enhanced Strong's lexicon defines glory as to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. It's like what they know of Jesus and their understanding of his worth is tangible, even though it's not. But that surety and that right apprehension of who Jesus is and what he's done shows in their rejoicing, even though they are not in heaven with him yet, where all of his glory where all of his glory will be revealed. The rejoicing is in the real, true, living glory of God that has been best seen and known in various times and in various ways, but most tangibly how? In the person of Jesus Christ. When Lucas started reading the first John thing, I'm like, I almost included that in here because John's like, what we have seen, what we've heard, what we've touched with our hands, that's what we proclaim to you. That's glory. And I can take somebody else's word for it. And I can say, I believe that. And I live by that on purpose. Because Jesus was a real person. They really did see him. They really did watch him die. They really did see him after he was back from the dead. And they really did watch him ascend into earth and hear him say, I'm coming back. So yes, that causes and feels the rejoicing of the recipients of Peter's letter. And here's what's great, greater, greatest... All this is leading somewhere. The rejoicing, the trials, the believing, the joy inexpressible. Verse 9 tells us where it's all leading. Verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This verse starts with a wonderful phrase, obtaining the outcome. To obtain is to get, to receive something. The outcome is the goal, the end game, the result. Here, these readers, these scattered believers, hear from Peter what all of this will culminate in. As they rejoice through trials and glory, the road that they are on is taking them on the way to their final destination to obtain the outcome of their faith, which has been operative in the place of sight, the faith has. And what is the outcome of it? The outcome is, drumroll please, the salvation of their souls. Now, I think that's one of those phrases that we're overly familiar with and don't have a clue what it means. The salvation of your souls. So, God, in the beginning, formed 
Adam's body out of the dust of the ground. A physical body. But it was no life in it. He then breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Physical body, spiritual life. And depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, it then says that Adam became a living soul. God had told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. Ezekiel 18.20 expands on this when it says, The soul who sins shall die. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So all through the Bible... There is the promise of death and the destruction of the soul when the holiness of God is transgressed, where there is sin. And unfortunately, for all mankind, that's the default destination of every person who came from Adam and Eve, which is all of us. Their original sin introduced not only sin, but death into the human race. But here, back in 1 Peter, Peter says that the outcome of their faith is the salvation of their souls. Salvation is the word soteria, and it means deliverance, preservation, or safety. A.W. Pink describes it this way. A fourfold salvation saved from the penalty, power, presence, and most importantly, the pleasure of sin. Well, put all of that soul and salvation information together and think about what it means that the outcome of faith is the salvation of our souls. Two options for souls in eternity death or life. What's it mean for a soul to be dead? First of all, let me be clear. Believing in Jesus leads to the believer's souls being saved, preserved, or kept safe for all eternity. As opposed to what Jesus says, which is being destroyed in hell. Now, again, let me be clear. That does not mean that unbelievers are annihilated. Why? Because spirits are immaterial. They can't be destroyed. Spirits are eternal. Everybody's spirit is eternal. And your spirit will spend eternity in one of two places. Heaven or hell. The spirits of sinners will suffer forever. Their body and soul may be destroyed or annihilated. And that's not today's point, but I want to make sure that we don't think that we're communicating in any way that hell is not forever and that the suffering of hell is not forever. 
The Bible tells us that that suffering is forever and the torment of those there is forever as well. But the New Testament is clear that the believer's body, soul, and spirit will be kept intact and safe and preserved due to their salvation, which is the outcome of their faith in the perfect one who purchased their deliverance and is keeping them until they obtain it. Now that's a lot to think of, and that's where we're going to put a dot, a pin. Receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The truth that your body, soul, and spirit will be kept intact and safe and preserved due to your salvation. And that salvation is the outcome of your faith. And your faith is placed in the Christ, the Son of the living God, the perfect one who purchased that deliverance and is maintaining, keeping, and preserving you until you obtain it. Rejoice indeed. Now that everything's as clear as mud, let's turn our attention to application. A lot of wonderfulness in these four verses. We're going to be looking at application through four P's. There you go. There's your P's, everybody. Get it off your chest. It's the only P's you're getting from me, I'll tell you that right now. Four P's. Problems, precious, preserved, and praise. Problems, precious, preserved, and praise. First is problems. Our passage today, and we've used so many other passages throughout uh, the text, we're not going to have passages for each application point. We're just going to pull them straight from the text. Problems here are trials. And what did we learn today about trials? They're, They're coming. Expect them. Don't be surprised, Adam. James talks about that. Don't don't be surprised. James even says to rejoice in them. So as I look up the road of my life and I'm making plans and I'm thinking, okay, I don't know a whole lot, but one thing I do know is trials are coming. So when they pop up, do I go, oh, what? I don't know what that means. Don't be surprised. And Peter says that later. Don't don't be surprised. Because he told us. If necessary, for a little while, you're going to experience... And guess what? It's necessary. So what do we do with these trials? Now listen. I think this is incredibly important. We grieve in the midst of it. We don't deny that they're here. We don't act like they're not a big deal. We don't act like, well, I'm an overcomer and these trials don't affect me. If they don't affect you, they can't do what they're supposed to do. Please don't be the people who tell somebody when they tell you they're having a trial or a struggle, just pray about it. Get over it. Give it to God. Don't worry about it. Don't be those people. Be Job's friends who sat with them on the ground for seven days. Not 
the friends, the same friends who later said, well, this is why this is happening. And if you'd have done better, this wouldn't have happened. Expect the trials. Grieve in the midst of them. Engage them. God, what are you trying to teach me here? I would much rather learn the lesson and get through this than just say, get me through it. Because you're not going to get through it until you learn the lesson. So engage it. Endure it. Expect it, engage it, endure it, and finally exult in it. Which calls us to both grieve and rejoice in the midst and in the aftermath of a trial or temptation. You say, well, you can't do both. You have to do both. Grieve and rejoice now. You say, well, that's, that's counterproductive. No, that's exactly what we're talking about. Can I rejoice in the midst of my grief? Because now is hard and I don't like it and there's something better that's waiting for me. That's the whole Bible. May we be a people who expect, engage, endure, and exult in our trials, in our problems. Now, sometimes we just cause problems for ourselves. Don't blame that on God. That's your fault because you're a dummy, and so am I. And Silas said amen. He's laughing at me. He's like, you are a dummy, man. But when these trials come, expect them, engage them, endure them, and exult in them. And, 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 not or, and. Grieve and rejoice in the midst of the aftermath, in the midst and the aftermath of these trials. Why? Because problems turn into something precious. Your faith, the genuineness of your faith, listen, Peter said it today, is more precious than anything that this world has or can give. The genuineness of your faith is more precious than anything the world has to give or offer. God, make me one who shows, exercises, has, and shares a sincere faith. Because that's far more precious than this temporal gold that's all going to pass away. I want genuine faith. And I want to seek it as something more precious than anything this world has to offer. But that means you're going to have trials. Right? Because the trials produce the genuineness. Show the genuineness. And so, let the problems bring about that which is precious. And may that which is precious not just be precious in God's eyes, but may be precious in our eyes. My genuine faith is the most precious thing I have in my life. Why? Because those problems produce that precious faith which leads to me being preserved. My genuine faith leads to my salvation. 
I am preserved. I am saved. I am kept. And my genuine faith is the surest sign of that salvation. The outcome of our genuine faith is salvation. That's what's at the end of the road. And we saw last week that he's keeping the inheritance for us in heaven and he's keeping us for that inheritance in heaven. And so my genuine faith is me saying, God, I believe you're going to do that. I trust that you're going to. I trust that you have done it. I trust that you are doing it. And I trust that you are going to do it. I have been, am being, and will be saved. And my genuine faith testifies to that, even though I struggle with these trials for a little while. Problems precious preserved. And finally, praise. Which is that word glory that we talked about. All of this, the trials, our faith, our salvation, the problems, the precious and the preserved. Listen, so cliche I'm afraid that we lose the truth of it. All of this is for the glory of God. All of this is to directly lead to Him being praised. And while we grieve, out of the depths I cry to you. I will wait for you. You never let go. You give and you take away. Still my heart will say, blessed be your name. That's the goal. Listen, that's the goal, the end game of all history. Literally. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And maybe you sit here today and say, well, I don't believe that. Oh, I ask that you would. Because one day your knee will bow. And you will glorify God by recognizing who He is, what He's done. And unfortunately, if you haven't placed your faith in Him, you'll glorify Him by being tormented in hell forever. You say, well, that don't make any sense at all. That's hard. But it's the clear testimony of Scripture. Hell is not a place where God goes, oh, well, we don't talk about that because that makes me look bad. Hell is a place that shows that God hates sin and that God is holy. And to fully apprehend His glory is to know that He is holy and He cannot bear sin in His presence. He destroys it. And those who have practiced it are cast into the outer darkness, to the fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And the smoke of their suffering goes up day and night. The doctrine of hell glorifies God and so does the doctrine of heaven. A free gift given by God's grace for those who will put their faith in the finished work of Christ and say, I'm a sinner and I'm not just afraid of hell. That's bad enough. But God, I want to see you as beautiful. 
I want to know this glory that we're talking about today. I want to see you and know you and love you and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory about who you are and what you're going to do. What you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And the only way to see that, know that, walk in that, is to confess that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and believe and trust that the body and the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to appease the wrath of God for your sins, to remove your sins as far away from you as the east is from the west, to cast them into the bottom of the sea so that that body of sin might never be brought up again, but that I might look to God and say, you have forgiven me based on the merits of your son and I have placed my faith in him. Make my faith genuine. Test me and try me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. As for me and my house, we have placed our faith completely in the finished work of Christ for our salvation. And we do believe that he is seated in heaven and that he is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. And all of history culminates in the praise of his glory. This glory which even now sustains and motivates us to rejoice in him. Let's pray. Father, we know that problems come. And you've shown us today that those problems test the genuineness of our faith. And that genuine faith is more precious than gold which perishes. And that precious, genuine faith does not remove the problems, but it does preserve us for eternal salvation. And that eternal salvation is to the praise of your glorious grace. Father, may we be those who suffer well, who display a genuine faith, who know that we are saved and kept for heaven. And may we glorify you now on the path to glorifying you forever. Speak life, Holy Spirit, to those who have it not this morning, this afternoon. And call us all to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? This one might be my favorite. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Let's stay and eat with us if you can.